0: I care deeply about seeing economic justice achieved. But until I explain what I mean by justice, that statement could have very different meanings. What are the options? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm Josiah Holland, born in 1996, and the last four of my social security number are none business. This podcast is my attempt to merge humor, philosophy, and whatever interesting things I encounter along the way. Perhaps you've heard the expression, give a man a fish and he eats for a day. Teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime. I spent two summers as a fish farmer, which could be a whole separate podcast series, and I'm here to tell you that the expression is much too simple for the world we live in. You see, it's true when no one else lives in the world, but as soon as you place that man in society, the dynamics get complicated. Problems and solutions get much more nuanced. And yet, there's still a lot of validity to the statement. Charity is giving a man a fish, and we need charity in society. Charity keeps the homeless in my city from dying of the cold certain nights of the year. However, economic development is teaching a man to fish. Or you could call it capacity building. And there are lots of types of capacity, education, knowing how to fish, financial capital, having the money to invest in a good fishing rod, social capital, knowing people who will let you fish from their dock, but is capacity building enough when it's holistic And sustained, perhaps. But let's think about the guy we just taught to fish. Does he have access to a rod? If we give him one, where does he get a new one when the one we gave him breaks? Does he have a bucket to put his fish in? Or will he only ever be able to catch one fish each time he goes fishing? Does he have a lake to fish at? How will he get there? And once there, will he be allowed to fish in it? Will there be fish in the lake? Or has it been overfished? soon we're not just interested in developing this man's capacity we're interested in ensuring economic justice on his behalf he could have all the capacity in the world but not be able to make good on it because of a broken system one of my favorite books is the locust effect it's written by gary haugen the founder of international justice mission or ijm and he uses stories along with data to show how vulnerable the world's poor are. The title of the book is a metaphor. You can grow a beautiful lush garden, but if you can't protect it from a swarm of locusts, you're at risk of waking up one morning to nothing but bare stems. Forget the vegetables, you're not even left with the leaves. So why even try to grow a garden if you know the locusts are coming and you can't stop them? This is the same question many of the world's poor ask themselves every day. Two years ago, I traveled to Sierra Leone to work with farming cooperatives and village savings and loans associations. One farming cooperative of blind men had just experienced their own version of locusts, but instead of locusts, a different pest was responsible. These farmers had adopted composting methods and followed our directions on systematically spacing the rows of corn maize. And this is no small task, especially when you're blind. It's hard enough when you've got eyes. Um, But in this teaching a man to fish metaphor, we had taught them to fish. But the day before they were planning to harvest, and they had a lot to harvest... A pack of monkeys came and ate everything. Three months of work, gone. They had invested more than time. They had invested financially, and they had nothing to show for it. What good is it to know how to fish if you can't hold on to what you catch? I talked to a lot of other farmers while I was there to try and understand why many of them were resistant to the adoption of sustainable farming techniques our organization was teaching. Our methods were evidence-based, and in the first year alone, by using compost as fertilizer, mulch instead of tilling, and properly spacing their seeds, we had demonstrated that farmers could double their yield. Production on that plot of land would continue to improve dramatically if they kept at it. So why weren't they doing it? Well, it turned out a whole number of reasons. They weren't stupid. Rather, we were the ignorant ones to think that it was so simple. First, this method requires a lot of work and upkeep. Most of these farmers had multiple plots of land far from their homes. Walking an hour both directions was a big commitment. When we encouraged them to plant close to their homes, they explained that their free-roaming goats would eat anything that grew. Pinning up the goats or fencing in the crops would mean more work to do. So, I kept digging. Second, they explained that neighboring farmers practiced slash-and-burn methods to clear their land, and having mulch on their fields put them at risk of going up in flames. Well, I kept digging. Third, it turns out that most of them were tenant farmers. This means that someone else owned the land and charged them to use it. The landlord would allow his tenants to clear an area of an overgrown piece of land and farm it for a year or two. He'd also expect as payment a portion of their produce. Then, after a couple seasons, he forces his tenants to move to another part of overgrown land. He farms where they just were, because the hard work of clearing has already been done. Great, set- It's a great setup for the landlord, it's a sucky setup for the tenant farmers. Especially since the methods we were teaching them were all predicated on the assumption that they'd be able to keep farming the same piece of land season to season. Sustainable practices aren't worth it if the landlord is going to be the one to benefit from the improved soil quality. With this system, the rich were growing richer and the poor were barely making it. I was out of solutions. Sure, we could teach people to plant close to home and build fences around their crops, but until the system of tenant farming was replaced with something more equitable and sustainable, slash-and-burn agriculture would continue to put mulched fields at risk of going up in flame, and the landlords would benefit from the sustainable practices of the tenants, meaning no one would adopt our techniques. This may not seem like a situation of blatant injustice, I haven't described a situation of landlords being given a free ticket to rape and pillage rural villages under their control. However, if you look at the history of Sierra Leone, it's riddled with genocide, ethnic violence, and blatant systematic injustice. Depending, though, on how we define justice, the tenant farming system is arguably systematically unjust. Let me explain. We can think of justice and fairness several ways. Using my original example of teaching a man to fish, let's make him real. His name is Bob. He wants to buy a fishing pole. Joe is the only guy in the area selling poles. I expect most of us agree that a basic level of fairness means that Bob should at least be allowed to purchase the rod from Joe. If he's told he can't buy it because of the color of his skin, that, for example, is unjust. The next level of justice has to do with price. This is where things start to get tricky. If the poll is outside of what Bob can afford, some would argue that this is unjust. A sliding scale, for example, could be used to charge the rich more so that the poor Bob can be charged less. However, as soon as you put yourselves in the shoes of the rich person, that might start sounding unfair. So. Let's look at regressive and flat taxes as real-world examples. Sales tax is a regressive tax. It disproportionately affects the poor because it constitutes a larger percentage of their income than it does for the rich. Federal payroll tax, however, is a flat tax. If you're making minimum wage, you get taxed at 6.2%. If you make $100 an hour, you get taxed 6.2%. So, back to Bob, maybe instead of charging a fixed rate, Joe could charge him a percentage of his income. But it turns out that some would argue that we can do even better. The rich guy in Bob's neighborhood really won't like this idea, but it's basically that of redistribution. A progressive tax example is that of federal income tax brackets. In theory, you're supposed to pay a higher percentage the higher your income. This means that poor Bob might only have to pay 10% of his income for the fishing rod, but his richer neighbor would be charged 15% of his income for the pole. A free market system isn't regulated like taxes, though. It typically takes the form of whatever might seem regressive, and it's for that very reason, that governments levy progressive taxes, which then help subsidize costs. I realize, though, I'm getting into the weeds of economics and, and how all this works. This has been fun, though, for me to think through because it forces me to reflect on what I think is just. Should governments intervene? What happens when they don't? and we haven't even begun to factor in corruption and crime, you might be strongly opposed to government intervention. But it is against corruption and crime that the poor are most defenseless and in the greatest need of government. Proponents of free market capitalism ought to, in my opinion, also recognize the value of the state in providing unbiased order. The Heritage Foundation is a relatively conservative Washington, D.C. think tank, and they've comprised 12 measures of economic freedom. The first four are property rights, government integrity, and judicial effectiveness. Crap, I realize that's the first three. But the point still stands. I'll never be an anarchist for a number of reasons, but I definitely won't turn to anarchy in pursuit of freedom. It's only under the constraint of authority that freedom can actually exist. If you don't believe me, look at the mess colonialists left when they pulled out of African colonies in the mid-1900s. By 1960, I'm pretty sure every African country had been liberated. Really, though, this just meant that a vacuum of governance had been created. Some countries managed to fill this governance gap better than others, but none of them had been left particularly well-positioned for the task. This is why I think Africa as a continent has generally had such a hard time catching up with Western countries. But if you fix the systems, economic freedom improves, thereby reducing poverty. By creating economic justice through the protection of property rights, preservation of government integrity, and ensuring judicial effectiveness, people's lives get better. But all of that takes money. So how does a poor country change its systems without money? The World Bank tries to facilitate it with what they call cost uh, structural readjustments, uh, or essentially loans made contingent on investments in systematic improvement. And does it help? Well, it depends who you ask. If it were this easy, we'd be free of poverty. But we aren't because the world is complex. It is because of this complexity that charity isn't enough, nor is capacity building. It is because of this complexity that IJM, or International Justice Mission, must continue its fight on behalf of the world's poor. You and I must commit ourselves to pursuing economic justice within our spheres of influence, and perhaps it will catch on. Mahatma Gandhi famously said, Be the change you wish to see in the world. I'd like to wager that if you replace change in that sentence with justice, you'll get both.